Let's pray. Father God, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our paths. God, lead us in righteousness for your name's sake, that we might know you and know what you have in store for us, what you have been doing through your church and through the gospel from the beginning of even the foundations of the earth. God, we thank you that this plan and your wisdom is so sure and steady. God, that we don't have to doubt. God, we pray during this time that your word would go forth. God, that it would proceed from my mouth without any error. But God, I also pray that the ears and hearts of those in this room would recognize the limits or the depths of what Christ has done for us, purchasing us through his blood. And not just us individually, but us corporately. So God, help us as we unpack these mysteries, these riches. We need your help. So Father, we pray that your spirit would be near to us. God, we thank you that through your word and through this new covenant, he is near to us for those who have trusted in Christ. God, be with your word. May it pierce our hearts in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. I was asked, I thought we were going to be in Ephesians again. Well, that would have been great. I love the book of Ephesians. But um, as we continue our study in the gospel and the church, I, I wanted to be able to, as we see the progression of God's storyline through his word, be able to see what his intention is for the New Testament church. See, there's differences between the New Testament church and the people of Israel. And some significant things have happened. So as we enter into God's word and proclaim it, there's a lot of things that he wants to tell us about his church. So as we continue, it's important to note that these sermons, you may already know this, these sermons are not comprehensive. In a 30-minute, 40-minute, maybe 45 minutes, depending upon how good I'm feeling, I cannot unpack everything that God says about this specific topic. I, I wish and hope and pray that I can get there, but that's not what I'm able to do. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to give you my best from God's inerrant and authoritative word. You see, last week we saw that Peter writes about this gospel and writes about these truths. And he says that even the angels long to look into the depths of these things. That's a pretty weighty statement. Paul, then, in our text last week, explains that he was given the ministry to proclaim the unsearchable riches of the gospel. These truths can't be fully comprehended in two 30-minute sermons. They just can't. 
it is going to require study outside of this Sunday morning time. It's going to require deeply getting in God's word and seeking it for yourself. It's going to require years and years of study to understand what is he talking about when he talks about his people being the church. And then ultimately, this is going to sound awful, it's going to take us all dying to understand the riches of this. It's going to take us getting on the other side of glory and understanding, being brought into the presence of God and understanding what it is that he has brought us into by faith in Christ into the church. We should long to treasure this gospel and treasure the truths of his church every day and every moment of our lives. So as we explore the depths of the gospel in the church, I want to remind you of where we were last week. We were talking about how the, the gospel and the church are so intimately connected that the church is what God has planned to be the thing that makes the gospel visible. The church makes the gospel visible. By the way that we operate in our normal, everyday life, it's the way that we proclaim the gospel to the nations. The church makes the gospel visible. While we could likewise say that today's sermon is going to be kind of the opposite, that the gospel makes the church visible. That the gospel makes the church visible. And the main point of this morning's sermon is that the church is a new covenant people with a great commission. The church is a new covenant people with a great commission. So let me read Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the prophet Jeremiah speaking the words of God that he is going to bring a new covenant to his people. But it's obvious to see that having a new covenant means that there was an old covenant. To have a new house, normally you would think that that means you had an old house. So distinctly, we are a new covenant people. The church is a new covenant people. We were brought forth through this new covenant. New covenant comes through Christ's blood. But what does it mean that we're a new covenant people? And whose people are we? 
We're the people of God. We're the people of God. We're his possession all throughout God's storyline. He's selected a people for his namesake. And he's done this through what we've talked about through covenants. He's called them and he's called them to a promise, a covenant. A definition of a covenant that I think is helpful is that a covenant is an enduring agreement which establishes or formalizes a defined relationship between two parties involving a solemn binding obligation to specified stipulations on the part of at least one of the parties towards the other, which is taken by oath under threat of divine curse and is ratified by a visual ritual. That's a lot to unpack there. That's a lot for me to unpack there. It is a promise of God to a people, his people Israel, that requires these obligations and stipulations to be met. So God promises that he will do things, and then he requires that we, his people, would do things. So this old covenant, the reality of having a new covenant means that there's an old covenant. What is this old covenant? Most people would say that it's God's covenant with Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 19. So remember this, God has chosen his people, Israel. They've been numerous. They've continued to grow as they've been in bondage to Egyptian slaveholders. But they're under bondage. So he delivers them. And in Exodus 19, God promises to be their God if they will be his people. And he says, if you do these things, I will bless you. And if you don't do these things, I will curse you. get to the new covenant, what does that mean? That the old covenant wasn't able to be kept. In fact, even just our reading of the Old Testament, if we continue, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, continue, 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 the fact that Deuteronomy even needed to be written by Moses, Deuteronomy meaning the second law, (laughs) it means that the Israelites didn't keep the first law. In fact, Israel was unable to keep the law. They were unable to keep the requirements, the stipulations of the law. The Israelites broke the covenant. And the Old Testament writers conclude that there is coming a better covenant, a new covenant, one that will be, as God says through Jeremiah, a new covenant. That's why the writer of Hebrews, as we get into the New Testament, talks about this new covenant in this way. Hebrews 8, verses 6 and 7. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Why is this new covenant better? Because God is both the one making the promises and he's the one filling up to the obligations. In the old covenant, God is making the promise and he's setting the obligations on the people to love God from a pure heart, 
to love God with their heart, mind, soul, and strength, with everything, every fiber of their being. And the Israelites can't do it. Time after time, you see sin after sin trips them up and renders this covenant void. But God is able to make this new covenant because He requires and fulfills that which He requires in Christ. Christ is the better Israel and that He's able to keep all of the promises, all of the requirements that God demands. That's why He's known as the pure and spotless Lamb. There's no blemish on His character, on His record. He is able to keep the covenant, this new covenant, and he does it to the point where he doesn't just do it through obedience. He does it through his blood, through his body given on the cross. The writer of Hebrews continues in chapter 9, verse 15. He says, Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions, committed under the first covenant. Who are those who are called? Who are those who are called under this new covenant? It's those who have been called to faith in Christ. It's those who have been called to faith in Christ. The church is not a building. The church is a people. As I was reading for this, I heard a story of a pastor who went and visited a church and the, the worship leader says to the congregation, he says, thank you for bringing the church into this building. The church is the people of God called by faith in Jesus Christ, who have been purchased and redeemed by his blood. This is what theologians call union with Christ. Jesus in John says that any who come to me, I will not, not let a single one out of my hand. It's union with Christ. That's how we display that through the church. So have you been united to Christ through faith? Not just a mere, I believe in God. Yeah, I, I believe in him. I believe that he created this world, but have you been united to Christ through faith? Have you recognized that you are a sinner in need of punishment and wrath? And Paul says that the punishment and penalty of sin is death. Have you recognized that you, apart from Christ, are worthy of punishment, of death, and separation from God? My fear is that maybe even in this room, there may be some who think that they are following Christ or have trusted in Christ, but they're still stuck on keeping the commandments. They're stuck on, well, I, I haven't killed anybody. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. That's not what gets anybody into heaven. Faith and trust in Christ, turning from sin, is what gets you into heaven. And it's what brings you into union with Christ through his church. How many of you have heard the comment, I, I want Jesus, or I, I love Jesus. Just give me Jesus, not the church. Anybody ever heard that? That's an impossible reality. Think of the things that Jesus says about the church. 
in Matthew, he says that after Peter has confessed Christ as the Messiah, he says that upon Peter's confession, that is the rock that he's building his church, Christ's church. And not even the gates of hell will come against it. You can't get Jesus apart from the church. If you have been united in Christ, your desire is to be involved in a church. One writer says that Jesus died for the church, obtaining it for himself with his own blood. Jesus did not just die for individuals. He died for a people, a body, a bride, consisting of many people, united in the bonds of a larger whole. Now, church, I want you to hear me. Jesus died for you. Your sin, Jesus died for that sin. Jesus died for you personally, individually, and it is needing a call of repentance and faith in Christ. But Jesus did not just die for you individually, for you to live as a lone ranger for the Lord. He saved a people that he might display the gospel through a people to the world. That's why in the New Testament, he uses these terms that make you think it's not just about me. It's not just about me individually. He uses the terms a body. First Corinthians, Paul gets at a body is made up of many members. He uses the analogy of ears and feet and hands. The same is true of individual local churches made up of many members that are gifted in specific ways. Maybe you're thinking, well, I'm just sitting in the pew today and I'm an ear. Well, praise God, because God so ordained the body to need ears. Maybe you think, well, I'm just, I'm just a foot. Praise God, because we need feet, too. We need each and every one who has been called to faith in Christ with the gifts and skills that they've been given to be functioning in a way that benefits the whole. Because in this mystery of all of us coming in with these different skill sets, we are able to give God glory through it. Not only does he use this term of a body, he also uses the term of a bride, getting at the bride needs to be faithful. The Old Testament casts this vision of Israel being God's unfaithful bride. You look at some of the prophets, you look at all of these things of Israel is set up to do great things. But somehow they never do those great things. Israel is freed from Egypt. They're ready to be brought into a land of milk and honey. You're like, wow, this is going to be great. They build an idol. They build a golden calf while Moses, and, while Moses is up communing with God. They're on the border of this promised land. And they say, oh my gosh, these people in there, they're too big. At every point in God's storyline of scripture, Israel is supposed to do something great and they don't. They're unable to keep these stipulations. 
but Christ is able. So as a church, we are to be faithful, Christ's faithful bride, that he will present on that final day as spotless, as blameless. He also uses the scripture that we said in between the songs, that once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Not just a people, but a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are the people of God. So what are we supposed to do, right? We get these things, but what are we supposed to do? Here's three things. We are to worship Him. When we come in here, we don't just sing songs or hear the piano or take an offering or say hello to our friends, though we should do all of those things. We are ultimately about worshiping Christ and what He has done in this new covenant by His blood, worshiping His sacrifice. Not only are we to worship God, we're also to disciple and encourage one another. We're to disciple and encourage one another. There should not be a week that goes by that you are not encouraging one another. You may look around and be like, well, we're, we're all family. Like, I'm supposed to encourage them? Yes. And whether you're blood family or whether you are Jesus' blood family, you are to encourage one another. Carry the burdens of one another, to pray for one another, and to disciple one another. We'll get into this discipleship of the second point of the sermon. So we are to worship Him. We are to disciple and encourage one another. And third and lastly, we are to proclaim the gospel to the world. In the bylaws of the church... The expectation of members is that they are to be faithful in all the duties essential to the Christian life. So whatever scripture says a Christian should be doing in the congregation of a church, we are to do those things. To attend habitually the service of this church, to give regularly for its support and its causes, and to share its organized work. One of those essential to the Christian life is proclaiming the gospel. So not only are we a new covenant people, but we're a new covenant people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him together by serving him in the world. It's not just about what happens here. It's about what happens in this community. It's about what happens in the state of Kentucky through the members of this church. It's about what happens in this nation through the members of this local church. It's what happens to the nations through the members of this local church. One of the encouraging things, as Brian, I think you were taking me through the other building about a month or so ago, there were pictures uh, in the second floor hall, and as I turned to them, uh, it was different families. Families, I think, from 2006, 2007, 2008, and it had the word sent to a specific nation. And I asked Brian, I was like, are these, are these members from the church that have gone to be missionaries? He's like, yep. 
Absolutely. And praise God for that, that they have been called to that service and have followed that call. That call might not look the same for everybody. I'm not saying, well, get off your keisters and go and be a missionary to Indonesia. But I'm also not saying if God calls you to do that, don't reject that call. So how do we serve him in the world? And what is the mission of the church? Well, aren't you glad Jesus has a word for us here? We do this by seeking to fulfill the Great Commission. So we are, as a church, a new covenant people under Christ's blood, recognizing that we cannot keep the law on our own. We need Christ to do it for us. And we also have a great commission. We have a great commission. Jesus, prior to his ascension, speaking to his disciples, gives them their marching orders. There is no question or quibble that what Jesus is saying here, you can't interpret it away. You can't say, well, maybe Jesus meant, well, maybe he, you may see its application differently, but there's no getting around. Jesus is calling all of his people who he has called to faith in Christ to this mission. So you can be a Christian and be on board with this great commission. Or you cannot be a Christian. Or you can be a disobedient Christian. Here's what Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Praise God that this this speech, this commandment, is sandwiched by Jesus, one saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a reassuring thing to know that your commander is the one who says all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So because of that, go. And then at the end, he says, I'm not just leaving you alone. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All authority has been given to Christ. This is why he says in Matthew 16, verse 18, that on you I will build my church and not even the gates of hell will come against it. This is an offensive position. The gates are defensive. This is telling the church to take this great commission, to take this gospel to the outer reaches of earth, even unto the gates of hell. And know this, church, They won't even come against you. All authority has been given. So go and do what? Make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. When I was a youth pastor, I asked the two students who I was discipling, I said, I want you to answer this question for me. What is a disciple? These are sophomore, juniors in high school, 
one of them wrote this huge long, well, a disciple is, you know, and then gave me like three pages. I was like, oh, my word. And then the other one, a disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. Make followers of Jesus Christ, not only from this community, but to all nations. How do we do that? Thankfully, Jesus has something to tell, for, tell us here as well. How do you make a disciple? You teach them. And not only teaching them in, in the head, that their heads might expand and they might know God more, but also teaching them to observe the commands, that their hearts might be filled with the goodness and riches of this gospel. Teach them to observe all. We teach them to observe God's word. So we are a new covenant people with a great commission. Through the new covenant, those who are called by God to faith in Jesus Christ, we're united to Christ and are members of his body, the church. We function and work for his glory in the world, and we do this by making disciples through the proclamation of the gospel. We have our marching orders, but will we be obedient? Let us pray that we would glorify God by being a new covenant people with a great commission, that we might glorify God in the world. Let's pray.